Good afternoon, Dr. Dan Guerra, and this is Authentic Biochemistry. Today is the 14th of March, 2022. Just yesterday, I made a video podcast lecture, and it's available on YouTube. And it's the beginning of the synthesis of all of this discussion we've had about diabetes. I really promote the idea that you go and watch and listen to that. Um, I think rather um, thorough video lecture where we talked a little bit about how some statistics are done in biomedicine, but we also talked about a, a study that related early onset obesity and type two diabetes to earlier progression of dementia. And we went to some detail. We didn't do a lot of biochemical detail on that lecture because it was more that we had to do about filling in where insulin resistance, um, hyperglucosemia, and dyslipidemia converge in that particular syndrome of disorders where you have obesity, T2D, uh, and of course, insulin resistance, and then that associates in the uh, CNS. And so that's what we did. Today, we're going to finish off a little bit of discussion about how biostatistics are done in medicine. And then we're going to move right back into the diabetes lecture. So I thought I would do an audio here to keep everybody on the audio side of the podcast um, still engaged with uh, authentic biochemistry. So here we go. All right, so let me uh, remind you a couple things, okay? If we're talking about hazard odds and risk ratios, we should keep in mind a few things. These are terms that are used in biomedical research papers and, of course, in discussions in open general public. So <clears throat> you have risk ratios, odds ratios, and hazards ratios. And according to the paper that I'm reading, which was published in 2020, which I'll put in the show notes, of course, um, many times in publications, I think they say a good third of the publications that they looked at, those three types of ratios are inappropriately commingled. So uh, I had suspicions of this because I read a lot of papers and I do notice that statistics get uh, sort of bulldozed right into a paper without any actual discussion of why they're using one kind of statistic or metric over another. So population statistics are values of any kind of measurement you can make within a population, and that population has to be defined. So, for example, diabetes incidence for patients with obesity so you have diabetes on one hand, you have obesity on the other. The population statistic could be the average incidence of T2D for all obese, okay, for all obese patients under the study, right? That would make a ratio. Now, that would be rather than the entire N number. So that would be almost impossible, right? Because we don't have the big N number of all obese people 
let's say, not even worldwide, let's just say in the continental United States. We have an estimate, we have good estimates, but we don't have the actual number. So if you don't have the actual number, you can't really run statistics because then you're just um, speculating what that number might be. So what you do with this kind of research for a risk ratio is, or any of these ratios, is you try to get a randomized sample that you hope is uh, indicative of the larger end number, right? The total number. Now that, that, that very first thing I just talked about, that's an induction, okay? So when you make an induction, you say, well, it's like this for all of these uh, given smaller cohorts of patients that we're looking at. So we're going to make a broad generalization and we're going to make an induction. We're going to say, therefore, it's like that for all people who are obese who also happen to get T2D, you see? Now, the problem with that is the sample size has to somehow approximate the total number in the population. Otherwise, you could be looking at skewed data, right? Because you only have a small group you're actually doing the measurements on. Whoever's, whatever the study may be, let's say it's a study that's with intervention, a pharmacotherapeutic intervention, then you're giving people, you know, uh, one particular kind of drug, let's say it's metformin, and you may be giving it three different doses and maybe at, oh, I don't know, six weeks, 12 weeks, and let's take it all the way out to a year. So you've got all of that to measure out. And that means you have to then randomize the population you're looking at so you can get sample sizes for each of those individual treatments. And then you have the control. And the control has to be age-matched, sometimes sex-matched, certainly comorbidity-matched. Otherwise, if you're just looking at a drug and it's various, and, it, and giving it various concentrations and looking at its effect on, say, progression-free survival of a disease which is done more often than things like cardiovascular and cancer, because those tend to have endpoints of higher mortality than T2D. But I just use that as a metric to explain to you that you are again making very broad generalizations. You have to be very careful. So that error is known as sample bias, common term in statistics. And so if you want to talk about the population rate of type 2 diabetes among all adults, potentially obese, you may be getting a huge error in that response, okay? So that is a number of people who are obese who then eventually are diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. If you, are, if you have any kind of sample bias and then you're going to do all of this uh, treatment work on them, then in the final analysis of your paper, you're going to not be sure whether or not that is extrapolated to all obese people who also happen to have diagnoses for type 2 diabetes. You see the problem there. And, and again, if you're looking at a uh, pharmacotherapeutic and you want to know whether or not that can be used for the you know any clinic in the nation and you're making that extrapolation, you don't know really whether or not it's suitable for any of the other subpopulation. You have to be very careful. So that effect is the reason for reporting confidence intervals and something called a p-value in clinical research. Now, confidence intervals are those intervals within the population statistic. And the way you make them, you construct them based on the sample statistic 
and on the biometrics of the sample. That is, what is the population composed of in the cohort? And that's supposed to be representative to a certain threshold. Okay, so confidence interval is going to give you some feeling of confidence that is representative to a certain threshold of the general population. So classically, we do a 95% CI. 95% confidence interval is that interval constructed such that on average, 95% of random samples that you may pick up would contain the true population statistics within that 95% confidence interval. Now, what that means right away is that 5% will not fit that statistic. And then you might think, well, that's okay because... 95% does, so you're, you're doing this induction, this extrapolation. So the idea is that because you have such a high confidence, 95%, that's very good, right? You would think, well, most of the time you're not going to make an error. But keep in mind that we don't know anything about that population that's in the 5%. So we don't know where there could be cross-references in your patient population. So that means that maybe within that 5% that fall out of the CI, out of the confidence interval, are all people who are between 45 and 50 who have male pattern baldness who also are obese and T2D diagnosed, you see? So I'm, I just pulled that out of, you know, any kind of potential phenotype. So you get the idea how you have to be very careful because you could have a lot of patients that fit that phenotype. And the, if they all were in that 5%, if that was how they co-migrated for falling out of the confidence interval, then none of them are going to respond to the pharmacotherapeutic according to the study you just did. You see? So that's a very important issue that most people don't consider. Now, p-value reports the probability that the sample statistic was produced from a random sampling of the overall population. Given a set of assumptions about the population, again, and those assumptions fall into your general null hypothesis. The null hypothesis being that, we, it depends on how you construct it, but you can say, my null hypothesis is that this pharmacotherapeutic will not have any effect. And then you want to see that you're wrong with that null hypothesis, so you prove it wrong. Another way of making it is that all people will respond a certain positive way. And then you look at how much deficiency there is in that particular uh, hypothetical deduction. So type 2 diabetes, for example, would be some metric with, uh, within an obese population with a p-value determining the chance of obesity in that population could be produced from a random sampling of the overall population, okay? So that's how you get the probability in there. The null hypothesis is for this particular, uh, you know, made up uh, analysis is that the population rate of type two diabetes with the, within the obese population is actually equal to the overall rate of diagnosis among all possible people in the population that happen to be obese. 
Okay, so that's the way that that's the way. And then if you prove or disprove that in a hypothesis, it could be either um, suggesting that the pharmacotherapeutic does function or that it doesn't function according to what it did in other studies or what it was designed to do when it was produced in the pharmaceutical laboratory. Now, more detail on the p-value. A one-tailed p-value will be used if there is reason to believe that an effect, say on it from a pharmacotherapeutic, would occur in only one direction. Now, another way of looking at this is you could have two different populations. You could have all people obese and all people T2D. So when you're doing a one-tail p-value on that kind of uh, distribution, you could say more obese means more type 2 diabetes diagnosed. Whereas a two-tailed p-value could be used in all other possible cases. That is, more obese, no effect on T2D. More obese, negative effect on T2D. And then you could go on the other side and use T2D as the uh, independent variable. See how that works. Now, when using a symmetric distribution, such as what's known as a normal distribution, the two-tailed p-values are simply twice, a doubling that is, of the one-tailed p-value, okay? Now, risk in statistics is also considered synonymous with probability. So risk or probability is another fundamental principle of statistical analysis. And probability is a comparison of observing a specific event occurring as a result of the total unique results you may obtain. Now, the one we classically use, because everybody can relate to it, is the coin toss or coin flip. So the risk, okay, we're going to say risk or probability of observing heads is one half or 50% of all possible unique trials. That means when you keep flipping and flipping and flipping the coin and that results in heads or that another flip could result in tails, right? Only one is of interest here because of what, the way you're asking the question and what you're interested in are heads, you see? So that's a probability for all flip coin flip when you have say, a quarter in your thumb and you're flipping that coin, the probability is only one half because there's only two possible things that can happen. You're either going to get heads or tails, you see. And it doesn't work out that way, but that's that would be what would be predicted from pure chance, right? But it doesn't work out that way. So, in fact, you could flip a coin 100 times and you could get 66 heads. Or the next person doing the same, or you doing it 10 minutes later, you could get 66 tails, right? Or 35, or... 74 or closer to the 50-50, right? So this, the, the risk ratio, okay, is a calculation of, for a ratio of two possible risks because it's a ratio. So you have the one number in the numerator and one number in the denominator, right? Because it's a ratio. And that's what is meant by risk ratio statistic. 
okay, a ratio of two risks. It's also known as a relative risk because you're, it's relative to whatever risks are there that are available, right? So it allows a specific number to be given for how much more risk, now going back to biomedicine, how much more risk an individual in one category, for example, obesity, compares to an individual in another category, let's say uh, undernourished, okay? And then relating that to another statistics like type two diabetes, you see. Or you could add that denominator to be general population. Now with a risk ratio, a result of one, when you have that number one there as your metric, that signifies that both groups have about the same amount of risk. While results not equal to one indicate that one group or another has more risk or probability than the other. Okay. So the question you can ask is, does obesity cause type 2 diabetes or does type 2 diabetes and again when I say the word cause the way I'm saying it understand that that's in scare quotes does type 2 diabetes cause obesity right now normally you wouldn't think about that way you would say well if you're diabetic you probably were obese before but that doesn't mean anything about causality right those are just correlations and can we confirm that you can have a person with type 2 diabetes that was not obese, but during the progression of their disease may become obese? And if that's the case, which can happen, of course, does that mean that the type 2 diabetes had a direct relationship to the induction of the obesogenic disorder? You see? So it's not, it's not as heretical as you may think. Now, an odds ratio, let's talk about that real quickly. While risk reports the number of events of interest in relation to the total number of trials, that means like for flipping the coin, for example, the odds report the number of events of interest in relation to the number of events not of interest. So when you get reports that give you the number of events to non-events, you have an odds ratio. While the risk as determined previously of flipping a coin to be heads is one in two or 50%, the odds of flipping a coin to be heads is actually a ratio of one to one, right? As there is one desired outcome, that's the event in this uh, discussion, and one undesired outcome, and that's the non-event. You see how that works? So the, so the risk ratio, ratio would be one to two, and you separate the two numbers by a colon, but the odds ratio would be one to one. If you're thinking about the desired outcome, let's say that, let's say that a desired outcome for the null hypothesis is that metformin will help curb um, oh, hyperglycemia, uh, okay? Something like that. You understand how that works? All right, now let's do a comparison of all three. I haven't even talked about the hazard ratios yet, but I'm just gonna, I wanna move on because I wanna talk about diabetes, but okay, both the uh, risk ratio and the odds ratio concern 
some kind of intervention, like let's say a pharmacotherapeutic or let's say a surgery, and then some outcome. That's how it's done in biomed, okay? So that's the RR and the OR concern interventions and outcomes. So thus they report across an entire study period, some kind of temporal framework. However, there is a similar sort of measurement, but it's definitely different than the RR or the OR. And that's called the hazard ratio. And the hazard ratio is really a more potent metric and statistic because it concerns the rate of change of an influence, let's say, of a pharmacotherapeutic on a given disease state in a given population. So let me go through this. It's a table that comes from the paper I've been looking at. If the goal is to determine relationships in risk status based on some variable, you would use a risk ratio. But if the goal is to determine the association between two variables, that would be an odds ratio. And now the hazards ratio for the goal would be to determine how one group changes relative to the other. Okay, this could be like long-term pharmacotherapeutic intervention, for example. Next question you can ask is the use of the measurements you're doing. If it's a risk ratio, the use tells us how an intervention changes the risk. Whereas with an odds ratio, the use metric tells us if there is an association between an intervention and a risk. So basically what it does is estimate how that association works when it does work, okay? Now the use metric in hazard ratio, is it what, that, what does that do? The hazard ratio tells us how an intervention changes the rate of experiencing or expecting some event. For example, some morbidity, let's say cardiovascular disease linked with type 2 diabetes, you see? That's why it would be called the hazard ratio. Now, what are the limitations for the risk ratio? Risk ratios, because of definition of what they're measuring, are only applicable if the study design is representative of the population. So you can't use it for any kind of case control study. But the limitations of the odds ratio are unique in that you can generally apply them everywhere. But not always is this going to be a very potent statistic because what it does, because it's one over the other, right? Desired versus undesired. It can easily exaggerate the risk or the lack of risk, right? Because it's an odds ratio of this or that, right? You understand how that works? Now, hazard ratio limitation is to be useful, the rate of change that you're supposedly measuring, like that, let's say it's a therapy to uh, alleviate insulin resistance. The rate of that change within two groups has to be relatively constant. Okay, if that rate changes according to the limitation of the study, then that means you're not going to get a clear understanding of what the hazard ratio tells you when you when you um, derive it from the population of this uh, from the study. You understand that, okay? Finally, what about the timeline? 
Now for the risk ratio, it's static, obviously, because there is no rate there, right? So it simply summarizes what happens with the completion of the study, just the risk over, you know, that entire time period. Whereas the timeline for the odds ratio, it also does not consider rates and it also summarizes an overall study. So both are static and you understand why that is because one is simply a risk ratio, like you're going to get more sick as time goes on if you have type 2 diabetes or an odds ratio, you're going to get better if we give you metformin, right? But that doesn't tell you anything about the overall study. There's no rate constant there. To have a rate, in the, you have to have a delta T. You have to look at the change over time. Now, the timeline and the hazard ratio is based on a rate. So that's really powerful, or I call it potent, because it provides a great deal more biomedical information about how a study may measure the progress over a time interval. Right? So you get the idea now about how these different metrics are used. And it's, that's all I really wanted, it's all I really wanted to cover there. And you can see that it's necessary to understand these metrics, right? So when you're reading a paper and you're looking at a risk ratio versus an odds ratio versus a hazards ratio, keep in mind what I just explained to you and what this paper uh, helped me explain to you by me reading the paper. The reason I want you to keep that in mind is because of what the um, challenge was from the authors of, the, of that paper and also from what I know from reading a lot of these kinds of manuscripts. <clears throat> Many times people will just sort of stumble through odds ratios, hazard ratios, risk ratios. And it's because they had a statistical model they were using. They're going to generate those numbers. But the actual researchers are not contemplating what those metrics are actually giving them. So in their discussion section, when they're talking about the results uh, compared to, let's say, the general um, largesse of papers that are published in that literature on, let's say, given pharmacotherapeutic for a disease like T2D, they're not going to be able to really explain to you why a hazards ratio in their paper has anything to do with a risk ratio in the general uh, plenum of publications, right? The largesse of all the publications dealing with that particular pharmacotherapeutic. You see where they could run into a lot of problems because they're going to try to compare a risk ratio or an odds ratio to a hazards ratio. And that is not an acceptable thing to do. So the hazards ratio, as I said, is the most potent because it can measure changes over time. But a limitation still with that, it's still a very simple statistic, obviously, because it's just a ratio as powerful as ratios are, it's, it's still built into that numerical value. The um, proposition that that ratio of rate of change doesn't itself change over time, right? That the, in other words, it doesn't plateau, right? Or it doesn't have any kind of sigmoidal characteristic to it. Because if it did, you wouldn't be able to pick it up with the hazards ratio, you see? And I can tell you, because I'm a biochemist, everything in living systems does not follow standard rate change. Even when you're looking at an enzymatic reaction, 
Sure, in a test tube, when you're doing enzyme kinetics and you're trying to look at turnover number, you know, you're trying to look at the amount of substrate uh, uh, generated um, from uh, the amount of product generated from the amount of substrate added over time, given standard conditions for the in vitro analysis. You're going to get good statistics because you're going to be doing it all in vitro. But when you're measuring that same enzyme in a living system, even if it's just in a cell and you're using things like radioactive tracers or a fluorescent probe, you're going to find out when you get all that data out and you, and you look at all the raw data and try to then um, distribute it into an evidence table, you're going to find there's a great deal of variation in that raw data. Because that's what biology is all about, variation. Because remember what I've always said in authentic biochemistry. We may only have 30 or 40,000 genes, but we have many, many, many variations on how those genes are finally expressed in the cell. And then the interaction of all the products of all that, all of those genes, those are just proteins now, is in the millions. But if you add in all the different molecular species of lipid, and all the different possible combinations of nucleotides in DNA and RNA and all the possible combinations of amino acids and polypeptides uh, and all the possible combinations of carbohydrates covalently linked to proteins, for example, you get hundreds and hundreds of billions of possible interactions, all of which can add variation to a simple hazards ratio. So I'm going to leave you with that because I'm out of time. This is Dr. Dan Guerra, Authentic Biochemistry Studios, saying bye for now.